Chapter Sixteen of Book First of Les Misérables, Volume Two by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nadine Cardboulet. Les Misérables, Volume Two by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book First, Waterloo. Chapter Sixteen. Quod Libras in Duce. The Battle of Waterloo is an enigma. It is as obscure to those who won it as to those who lost it. For Napoleon it was a panic. Blucher sees nothing in it but fire. Wellington understands nothing in regard to it. Look at the reports. The bulletins are confused, the commentaries involved. Some stammer, others lisp. Chaminé divides the Battle of Waterloo into four moments. Muffling cuts it up into three changes. Charas alone, though we hold another judgment than his on some points, seized with his haughty glance the characteristic outlines of that catastrophe of human genius in conflict with divine chance. All the other historians suffer from being somewhat dazzled, and in this dazzled state they fumble about. It was a day of lightning brilliancy, in fact, a crumbling of the military monarchy which, to the vast stupefaction of kings, drew all the kingdoms after it, the fall of force, the defeat of war. In this event, stamped with superhuman necessity, the part played by men amounts to nothing. If we take Waterloo from Wellington and Blotcher, do we thereby deprive England and Germany of anything? No, neither that illustrious England nor that august Germany enter into the problem of Waterloo. Thank heaven, nations are great, independently of the lugubrious feats of the sword. Neither England, nor Germany, nor France is contained in a scabbard. At this epoch, when Waterloo is only a clashing of swords, above Blucher, Germany has Schiller. Above Wellington, England has Byron. A vast dawn of ideas is the peculiarity of our century, and in that aurora, England and Germany have a magnificent radiance. They are majestic because they think. The elevation of level which they contribute to civilization is intrinsic with them. It proceeds from themselves and not from an accident. The aggrandizement which they have brought to the nineteenth century has not Waterloo as its source. It is only barbarous people who undergo rapid growth after a victory. That is the temporary vanity of torrents swelled by a storm. Civilized people, especially in our day, are neither elevated nor abased by the good or bad fortune of a captain. Their specific gravity in the human species results from something more than a combat. Their honor, thank God, their dignity, their intelligence, their genius, are not numbers which those gamblers, heroes, and conquerors can put in the lottery of battles. Often a battle is lost and progress is conquered. There is less glory and more liberty. The drum holds its peace, reason takes the word. It is a game in which he who loses wins. Let us, therefore, speak of Waterloo coldly from both sides. Let us render to chance that which is due to chance, and to God that which is due to God. What is Waterloo? A victory? No. The winning number in the lottery. The quine, won by Europe, 
paid by France. It was not worth while to place a lion there. Waterloo, moreover, is the strangest encounter in history. Napoleon and Wellington. They are not enemies. They are opposites. Never did God, who is fond of antithesis, make a more striking contrast, a more extraordinary comparison. On one side, precision, foresight, geometry, prudence, an assured retreat, reserve spared, with an obstinate coolness, an imperturbable method, strategy, which takes advantage of the ground, tactics, which preserve the equilibrium of battalions, carnage, executed according to rule, war regulated, watch in hand, nothing voluntarily left to chance, the ancient classic courage, absolute regularity. On the other, intuition, divination, military oddity, superhuman instinct, a flaming glance, an indescribable something which gazes like an eagle, and which strikes like the lightning, a prodigious art in disdainful impetuosity, all the mysteries of a profound soul, associated with destiny, the stream, the plain, the forest, the hill, summoned, and in a manner forced to obey, the despot going even so far as to tyrannize over the field of battle, faith in a star mingled with strategic science, elevating but perturbing it. Wellington was the barim of war. Napoleon was its Michelangelo. And on this occasion, genius was vanquished by calculation. On both sides someone was awaited. It was the exact calculator who succeeded. Napoleon was waiting for Grouchy. He did not come. Wellington expected Blucher. He came. Wellington is classic war taking its revenge. Bonaparte, at his dawning, had encountered him in Italy, and beaten him superbly. The old owl had fled before the young vulture. The old tactics had been not only struck as by lightning, but disgraced. Who was that Corsican of six-and-twenty? What signified that splendid ignoramus who, with everything against him, nothing in his favor, without provisions, without ammunition, without cannon, without shoes, almost without an army, with a mere handful of men against masses, hurled himself on Europe combined, and absurdly won victories in the impossible? Whence had issued that fulminating convict, who almost without taking breath, and with the same set of combatants in hand, pulverized one after the other the five armies of the Emperor of Germany, upsetting Beaulieu on Alvinci, Wormser on Beaulieu, Melas on Wormser, Mac on Melas? Who was this novice in war with the effrontery of a luminary? The academical military school excommunicated him, and as it lost its footing. Hence, the implacable rancor of the old Caesarism against the new, of the regular sword against the flaming sword, and of the exchequer against genius. On the 18th of June, 1815, that rancor had the last word, and beneath Lodi, Montebello, Montenote, Mantua, Arcola, it wrote Waterloo, a triumph of the mediocres which is sweet to the majority. Destiny consented to this irony.
In his decline, Napoleon found Vormsa, the younger, again in front of him. In fact, to get Vormsa, it sufficed to blanch the hair of Wellington. Waterloo is the battle of the first order, won by a captain of the second. That which must be admired in the Battle of Waterloo is England. The English firmness, the English resolution, the English blood. The superb thing about England there, no offense to her, was herself. It was not her captain, it was her army. Wellington, oddly ungrateful, declares in a letter to Lord Bathurst that his army, the army which fought on the 18th of June, 1815, was a detestable army. What does that somber intermingling of bones buried beneath the furrows of Waterloo think of that? England has been too modest in the matter of Wellington. To make Wellington so great is to belittle England. Wellington is nothing but a hero like many another. Those Scotch greys, those horse guards, those regiments of Maitland and of Mitchell, that infantry of Pack and Kempt, that cavalry of Ponsonby and Somerset, those highlanders playing the pibroch under the shower of grapeshot, those battalions of Ryland, those utterly raw recruits, who hardly knew how to handle a musket holding their own against Esling's and Rivoli's old troops, that is what was grand. Wellington was tenacious. In that lay his merit, and we are not seeking to lessen it. But the least of his foot-soldiers, and of his cavalry, would have been as solid as he. The iron soldier is worth as much as the iron duke. As for us, all our glorification goes to the English soldier, to the English army, to the English people. If trophy there be, it is to England that the trophy is due. The column of Waterloo would be more just if, instead of the figure of a man, it bore on high the statue of a people. But these great England will be angry at what we are saying here. She still cherishes, after her own 1688 and our 1789, the feudal illusion. She believes in heredity and hierarchy. This people, surpassed by none in power and glory, regards itself as a nation, and not as a people. And as a people, it willingly subordinates itself, and takes a lord for its head. As a workman, it allows itself to be disdained. As a soldier, it allows itself to be flogged. It will be remembered that at the Battle of Inkerman a sergeant who had, it appears, saved the army, could not be mentioned by Lord Paglen, as the English military hierarchy does not permit any hero below the grade of an officer to be mentioned in the reports. That which we admire above all, in an encounter of the nature of Waterloo, is the marvellous cleverness of chance. A nocturnal rain, the wall of Hougamont, the hollow road of Ohain, Grouchy deaf to the cannon, Napoleon's guide deceiving him, Bellow's guide enlightening him, the whole of this cataclysm is wonderfully conducted. On the whole, let us say it plainly, it was more of a massacre than of a battle at Waterloo. Of all pitched battles, Waterloo is the one which has the smallest front for such a number of combatants. Napoleon three-quarters of a league, 
Wellington half a league, seventy-two thousand combatants on each side. From these denseness the carnage arose. The following calculation has been made, and the following proportion established. Loss of men at Austerlitz, French, fourteen per cent. Russians, thirty per cent. Austrians, forty-four per cent. At Wagram, French, thirteen per cent. Austrians, fourteen. At the Moskowa, French, thirty-seven per cent. Russians, forty-four. At Bautzen, French, thirteen per cent. Russians and Prussians, fourteen. At Waterloo, French, fifty-six per cent. The Allies, thirty-one. Total for Waterloo, forty-one per cent. One hundred and forty-four thousand combatants, sixty thousand dead. Today the field of Waterloo has the calm which belongs to the earth, the impassive support of a man, and it resembles all plains. At night, moreover, a sort of visionary mist arises from it, and if a traveller strolls there, if he listens, if he watches, if he dreams like Virgil in the fatal plains of Philippi, the hallucination of the catastrophe takes possession of him. The frightful 18th of June lives again. The false monumental hillock disappears, the lion vanishes in air, the battlefield resumes its reality, lines of infantry undulate over the plain, furious gallops traverse the horizon, the frightened dreamer beholds the flash of sabres, the gleam of bayonets, the flare of bombs, the tremendous interchange of thunders. He hears, as it were, the death rattle in the depth of a tomb, the vague clamour of the battle phantom. Those shadows are grenadiers, those knights are cuirassiers. That skeleton Napoleon, that other skeleton is Wellington. All this no longer exists, and yet it clashes together and combats still, and the ravines are empurpled, and the trees quiver, and there is fury even in the clouds and in the shadows. All those terrible heights, Hougomont, Mont-Saint-Jean, Frichemont, Papelotte, Plancenois, appear confusedly crowned with whirlwinds of spectres engaged in exterminating each other. End of Book First, Chapter 16 Recording by Nadine Cartboulet